Good morning. Uh, welcome to GBC. It's, um, it's a real delight to be celebrating Easter Sunday with you guys all, the time that we get to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Um, thanks to Katie and Sarah for um, the kids' talk before. Uh, my job's done now, um, so we can all just pack up and go home now. You've heard all about the resurrection. We can pack up and leave. Um, yeah, it's obviously a joke. Um, so uh, what we're going to do is we're going to read uh, Matthew chapter 28, um, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to get, get right into it. So let's read Matthew chapter 28 together. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. And there you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Our Father, Would you speak to us this morning as we hear from your word? Fill us with faith, hope, and love as we consider the resurrection of your Son. By the work of your Spirit, may we overflow with joy because of your Son, Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. History can feel uh, rather distant and irrelevant at times. I can remember sitting in an old Anglican church building in the middle of Perth about a decade ago, 
And there was a man sharing about his and his wife's recent journey to the United Arab Emirates. There was something that he said that helped me to see that the events of history actually have a profound impact on our world. He was sharing about the events of September 11. Plane attacks that had occurred a decade earlier and he was explaining how these events changed so much. These horrific, devastating events that killed so many. Events that rattled a naive world, shaking it with fear. He explained how from that moment on, there was heightened sensitivity to terrorism, massive increases in airport security, tightening of national foreign policy, the triggering of wars around the world. It was one of those times where I first realised that actually the events of history have a profound impact on our world. This was one event, just one event that changed the world. Easter is about one event, one tragic yet glorious event. 2,000 years ago, a carpenter, a Jew in his early 30s, was killed by Roman executioners, died and rose again. This passage that we just read about is about that event. And this Easter, God wants us to grasp how that event changes everything. The chapter we just read is actually quite surprising. One of the things it wants to present to us is actually how this event marks and triggers a transition in the, on the cosmic level. Heaven and earth are included. But it also impacts every single one of us, deeply, personally, unavoidably. The passage that we're looking at has three movements to it. It's marked out by its geography, actually. From verse 1 to 10, we're at the tomb. From verse 11 to 15, we're in the city. And from verse 16 to 20, we're on the mountain. So let's get right into it. To start off with, we're at the tomb, verses 1 to 10. And they are telling us the events around the resurrection. The key players are the two Marys and the angel of the Lord. Mary was quite a popular women's name at the time, so it's, hard, it's actually pretty hard to pin exactly who these two Marys are. Uh, but what, from the evidence that we do have, they were two loyal followers of Jesus. First one tells us that they were going to see the tomb. It doesn't give us a lot of information, but you can see that they're, they're approaching innocently, unexpectedly even. And then out of the blue, in a matter of minutes, there's an earthquake, an angel, an open tomb, and trembling guards. Verse 2, the angel descends from heaven and rolls back the sealed stone. Verse 3, we're told that it's an imposing angel, an appearance like lightning, clothes white as snow. These shocking events, the angel, the earthquake, they're all telling us something, aren't they? They're saying, look, behold, this is a work of the divine. 
a divine work coming in and colliding with the natural world. God would often send angels to mark significant moments in history. An angel of the Lord appeared when God confirmed his promises to Abraham and to Sarah. An angel appeared when God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. And an angel appeared to announce the conception of a baby in the Virgin Mary's womb. And now an angel appears here. In verse 4, the guards trembled and stumbled. But, verse 5, the angel spoke to the women. You can imagine them wide-eyed and attentive as the words come. Do not be afraid. I know that you seek Jesus. He's not here. But he has risen. Verse 7, go quickly, tell the disciples. Tell them to meet me in Galilee. And they ran. They ran. They ran to tell the disciples. And on their way, they see him before their eyes. The risen Jesus standing before them. And verse 9, they fall down. They grab his feet and they worship him. In verse 10, he says to them, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. The New Testament has a really fascinating boldness to it. You can see it in these verses that we've just looked at. It's persistent in making the claim that Jesus really rose from the dead. Look at the information that Matthew includes. Verse 6, it claims that the two women saw with their eyes the empty tombs, specifically the place where he lay. Verse 9, the two women speak with their mouths to Jesus and touch with their hands his feet. And even down there in verse 15, Matthew corrects a false story that has spread about Jesus' resurrection. Matthew wants to tell us these details because he wants us to see them as real events. It's not a myth. Nor is it a metaphor somehow about Jesus rising in our hearts or something like that. It's fascinating, isn't it? See, there's room to say that the Bible makes bold, even outrageous claims. But what you can't say about the New Testament is that it's being somehow disingenuous. It's not saying to people who would want to believe in Jesus, it's not saying to them, "Just, just believe Close your eyes, switch off your brain, and just blindly trust. No, the the Bible has a far greater boldness to it than that. It makes historically verifiable statements and claims. Real places like Galilee and Jerusalem are listed. It's at real times and dates, all historically verifiable moments. Christianity and the claims that it makes are not anti-intellectual. And it couldn't be any other way, could it? God gave us and made us to be people who have brains and minds to think and critically analyse and do all those sorts of things. Christianity is not anti-intellectual. To be clear, it's not purely intellectual either. But we do need to set the record straight here. See, in our culture, religion falls into this category called values. 
those things which you're welcome to hold, but, but just please hold them privately, would you? Don't bring them out into public conversations. Sure, it might make you happy, but whether it's true or not is irrelevant. Whereas in the other category are things called facts. Things here are like 2 plus 2 equals 4, the sky is blue, the earth revolves around the sun. <clears throat> but Christianity does not fit so neatly in those categories. Because one of the most central claims about Christianity is that Jesus died and rose again. It's fundamental. The Bible itself will make the claim that if that did not really historically happen, then the whole show falls like a house of cards. It's not just a value, but it's a real time and place bound fact of history. Christianity is not anti-intellectual. You don't need to leave your brain at the door. In fact, the Bible requires that you bring your brain. It's, it's making these truth claims. And it's claiming here that Jesus really, historically, at a specific time and place, rose from the dead. And here's the point of all that. The point of all that is to say this. When someone gives you a fact, it forces your hand. You have to do something with a fact. You see, if, if Christianity was just making the claim that Jesus somehow just rose in your hearts or somehow it was just a myth, you could just say to that person, oh, oh, that's great for you. Whatever makes you sleep well at night, you do you, but that's not my cup of tea. But with a truth claim, with a fact, you're forced into a position where you need to make a decision about what to do that. Which actually limits your options as well, doesn't it? So either the New Testament is telling the truth and that then has implications for your life or the New Testament authors are deceived and they're just delusional or they're intentionally trying to deceive people. There could be a fourth option. I couldn't think of one. But if this is really a truth claim that the Bible is making, you have to make a call on that. It doesn't leave you neutral. The New Testament is bold. It says that Jesus really rose from the dead. And the question that comes out of that is, what are you going to do with it? How will you respond? What are you going to do with that claim? Thankfully, the rest of the passage is going to help us answer that question. So let's get into the second movement. We moved from being at the tomb, and now we're at the city, verse 11 to 15. <clears throat> the resurrection of Jesus has an explosive force, but it also has a divisive impact. It propels the two women out to find the disciples with great joy, but it also, verse 11, propels the guards out to find the chief priests in Jerusalem. But notice there in verse 11, it's not called Jerusalem. It's just called the city. It's Matthew's way of indicating that Jerusalem is now a discredited city. Discredited and corrupt Jerusalem, not even worthy of its name anymore. It gets referred to as 
the city. It was a city that once laughed at and ridiculed Jesus. A city that rejected him and killed him. And now you look at them and it's a city that's completely on the back foot. It's a city paying hush money to the soldiers, working the cogs to carry out a cover-up. You see, the resurrection divides. There's no middle ground in our passage. If the resurrection is true, it changes everything. And the chief priests knew this. The chief priests knew they'd look bad if the, if the story leaked that Jesus really died and rose again. They were the ones who killed him. And they've just had this clear sign that Jesus really is God's chosen king. What would it mean for the chief priest if this story did like, well, it'd probably mean they'd lose their positions of status and honor in the community. They'd lose their power. They'd lose the illusion that they were justified in killing Jesus. Which actually hits pretty close to home. Because those are some of the things that I see operating in my own heart as well. And actually, they're things that operate in our own heart, things that we cling to for ourselves. We, we cling to things like status and power and honour and self-justification. And a little later, we're going to learn that Jesus, as he rises from the dead, he rises as the supreme ruler of the universe. And that is awfully inconvenient. Jesus being the one who holds all authority in heaven and on earth is awfully inconvenient. Because it means that I don't get to call the shots on my own life anymore. It means he's the one who gets to decide how I choose to live my life. The direction I choose, the the way I spend my time. So as you consider the events of the resurrection, perhaps particularly if you're someone coming at it for the first time, we have to be honest with ourselves. We have to check what our heart is doing as we consider them. So I I can remember when I was, must have been sometime in primary school aged, uh, I would play games on the computer just for fun and uh, my mum would put on the oven a timer for half an hour. And when I'd hear the timer, it'd be time to stop playing and then go and do something else. But I do remember this one time when it went off, mum was outside doing the gardening and no one else was around. So I walked into the kitchen, turned it off and straight back to the computer to keep playing my game. See, I, I knew really clearly the truth, didn't I? I knew the timer went off and not only that, I knew that I would be in trouble when mum came back in as well. It was a matter of time. But the truth was inconvenient. The truth meant that I had to give up something that I wanted. And it's exactly what the chief priests are doing, isn't it? They know that Jesus has died and risen again. But it's awfully inconvenient for them to believe that that's true. And that's true for every single one of us. Our our instincts are self-protective. We want to hold on to control. 
We're concerned for our own status and power. And the resurrection of Jesus threatens that, doesn't it? So as you consider the resurrection of Jesus, you just need to check yourself. Have you actually considered the resurrection? Have you looked at the claims and the evidence and done it generously and honestly? Or have you already decided that you don't want it to be true? Because if it is true, it changes everything. So finally we come to the real significance of the resurrection on the mountain, looking at verse 16 to 20. It's here that we see why it is such a big deal that Jesus rose from the dead. What difference does it make? Why, why is it really this inconvenient? Well, let's get into it. Verse 16, the disciples are gathered to Jesus. And just as the two Marys had done before, they worship him. And it tells us that some even doubt it. And it's at this point that Jesus speaks to them. It starts in verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's his opening words here that form the foundation for the rest that come after. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is the difference that the resurrection of Jesus makes. This is why it's such a big deal. And ultimately, this is why the resurrection is so inconvenient. It marks the cosmic shift in the universe. All authority in heaven and on earth resides in this one person. This 30-something-year-old Jewish carpenter rises as the all-supreme ruler of the universe. And as the newly installed king of the universe, he gives his commission to his people. He says, go, go and make disciples of all nations. You see, the resurrection continues to have this explosive force propelling the disciples and those who would follow Jesus afterward out into the world to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to obey everything Jesus has taught. See, for the disciples, this is not the graduation, but the commencement. This is the commencement of carrying out Jesus' mission for the rest of time. And Jesus, being the all-powerful, almighty, transcendent one, Verse 20 promises his followers that he will be with them always. It's the very end of the age. Listen, if, if you're not a Christian here, and you're considering the claims of the resurrection and thinking about it and, and one, thinking about the inconvenience that we've been talking about, this is what makes it all worth it. Certainly, the message of the resurrection is inconvenient. 
It means submitting to someone else, the Lord Jesus, as the ruler of your life. It means shifting priorities, shifting what's really important in your life. But in the end, it, it's actually no inconvenience at all. Or actually, it's, it's the kind of inconvenience that's worth embracing. Kind of like how having children is an inconvenience. Or marrying the person you love is an inconvenience. Yeah, there's inconveniences involved, but they're inconveniences you're willing to make. The risen king promises to be with you forever. Forever. If you would only embrace him as your king, he will be with you forever. And with him as your king, you will face all the difficulties all the sufferings of this world with him by your side. There is no enemy that can now touch you. Sure, death could knock on your door to collect you, but it can only carry you closer to Jesus. And sure, the suffering of this world will sting but it can never budge the king off his throne, even a little bit. Now, Jesus promises to be with you forever. For those of us, those among us who have given themselves over, given themselves over to this king, this is what gives us boldness to go to make disciples of Jesus, to hold out the news of the resurrection to the world. He is with us to the end of the age. It gives us the boldness to open our mouths, to speak about Jesus to friends and to family, to colleagues. It gives us the boldness to make costly decisions with our life. If it means that people can hear about Jesus, it gives us everything we need so that we can go. The man who I was telling you about that I was listening to in that old Anglican church building about a decade ago, his name was Mac. Mac and his wife, Leanne, tell the story of what they were doing when the planes hit the trade tower buildings in New York 20 years ago. They were doing yard work under a clear blue sky. See, they were, they were preparing their house, ready to go on the market the day after. Selling their house was part of a bigger vision they had to move overseas. They were moving to the United Arab Emirates where the goal was to set up a university ministry to students in Dubai. And it was on that afternoon, the afternoon of the clear blue skies, the afternoon of preparing their house to sell, it was on that afternoon they heard the news and saw the, saw the footage of the two planes ramming into the Twin Towers. Eventually it became apparent that this was a premeditated Islamic attack and the two of the terrorists came from the United Arab Emirates. And so Mac and Leanne were faced with this question. Since some of the terrorists came from the very place we intended to live, should we go at all? But they were confronted with three much deeper questions. 
And they were these. Do we believe that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth? Do we believe that in the same breath he spoke of his power, he also said, go? And most of all, do we cling to his promise to be with us always? Their answers, yes, yes, and yes. And two days later, their house sold, and later that year they settled into their life in Dubai. This gives us a really great picture of what our lives could look like. Personally, as families, with friends, as a church, that could be us. We believe in the same gospel as Mac and Leanne. We believe the same promise that Jesus will be with us always. And although it might not mean traveling overseas for all of us, could you imagine? Could you imagine each one of us convinced that that is actually true? See, the resurrection has an explosive power, doesn't it? It propels us out into the world. It's news that's not meant to stay with us, but to multiply beyond us. Isn't that what we want? Isn't that what we want more than anything? To look back on our lives and to see how God used us to take the news of the resurrection out. That's awfully inconvenient, isn't it? That has implications for our career, for the comfort that we want, for our image or our status. But it's the kind of inconvenience we want to embrace, isn't it? Friends, neighbours, family, gathered to Jesus, serving him. Those who are far away from Jesus, coming near into his kingdom and serving him. Isn't that what we want? Let me close by praying. Our Father, thank you for sending your Son, Jesus, to come and die on the cross to take away our sin. And thank you for for raising him from the dead, giving us life forever. Father, please help us if we're in the position where we're considering the resurrection of Jesus uh, for the first time as a, as a seeker, as someone who's not yet a Christian. Uh, please help those of us among us who are doing that and to give us clarity and humility in considering the claims of Jesus. And Father, might you help them to see the glory and the beauty and the goodness of the resurrection of Jesus. Father, please help us as uh, those who have given ourselves to follow Jesus. Father, help us to recommit to doing that. Help us to give ourselves over, not to our own purposes, but to the purposes of Jesus, to make disciples of all nations. Father, give us great joy and great confidence and boldness in doing that. And Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.